to the darker side true crime i'm your host breaker if you haven't already please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend today today we'll be covering the case of if i can't have you with that said on with the show in january of 1994 Stephen rebecca vargas married each other for the second time in less than a month into the second marriage, Stephen was eating lunch in Ogden Restaurant with his aunt, Vicky Pobla. Vicky noticed her pleasure at seeing the couple back together and asked him what he would do if his marriage had failed again. Stephen told her, quote, Would kill her, kill Rebecca first, unquote. Vicky then replied that he did not really mean that, to which Stephen replied, quote, Oh, yes, I do, unquote. Sidebar, that's rather uh, disturbing, don't you think? Similarly, eight, about eight months later, the Vargases had a fight at the Northeast Flagging Company where the couple worked. Immediately afterwards, afterward, Stephen told several witnesses, quote, If she ever leaves me again, I'll kill her. Unquote. Finally, in October of 1995, Stephen Vargas and Gary Heward, a deputy Weber County attorney, were discussing the O.J. Simpson murder trial when Vargas stated, quote, if a black man can do that and get away with it, so can a Mexican, unquote. A month before Stephen's conversation with Heward, huh, Rebecca had told M Melinda McLean, Stephen's younger sister, that she was considering leaving her husband too much Two months later, in November of 1995, the couple told the Vargas family that they were divorcing. On November 22nd of 1995, Robert Escobar, Stephen Vargas's half-brother, called Stephen to arrange a visit. During the conversation, quote, out of the blue, unquote, Stephen had asked Escobar if he would kill his wife. Quote, all you got to do is, I'll fly you, quote, I'll fly you down there. You can hit her over the head with a bat a couple of times. She's so small, she'll die. I'll fly you right back. You'll be in and out in a few hours, unquote. Escobar refused, and his brother responded, quote, if you don't do it, 
I've got something else in the works, unquote. Rebecca Vargas met, met with McLean three days later on Christmas at a local bowling alley and bar, Ben Loman Lanes for drinks. The two were joined by Monty Volwaller, Volwaller, a police officer whom Rebecca Vo was seen was dating. Spit it out, breaker. Rebecca told McLean that in three days on December 28th, she would be moving out of the trailer house in which she was living with her husband and Mike Reed, his nephew, into an, into an apartment. On December 27th, Rebecca, Rebecca called Vorwaller and told him that day she was moving. At around noon on that day, Reed had helped her load some cleaning supplies into her Jeep. Then she drove to her new apartment, which was one of three apartments she had and her husband maintained and managed. After cleaning there for several hours, she returned to the trailer house and Reed drove the Jeep to work. After working until about 1700 hours on that same day, Stephen went to the Sand Trap, a private club, then to Ben Loman Lames, where he talked to Garrett Bell and told him that he was breaking up with his wife. At about 1815 hours, Stephen went home. Before leaving, he told Bell that he would be, he would be back at around 1930 hours that evening to meet a woman. However, he did not return. At about 19.30 hours or 6.30 p.m., the Vargases and their two, th two children ate dinner at a buffet restaurant in Ogden. From this point until about 10... Uh, 10.30 p.m. that evening, the, there are two versions of events. The first is according to Stephen. After eating di dinner, the family went to a theater and watched the movie Toy Story. At 9 p.m., they went to another restaurant to get drinks and returned home at about 9.30 p.m. At this time, Rebecca Vargas went to go check on her apartment. Sidebar, that's a real short movie. If I recall right, Toy Story lasted more than an hour. But this is according to court documents. Back to the case. However, the state, uh, according to court documents, the state content contends that according to uh, that between 6.30 and 7, uh, 7 o'clock that evening, Stephen's nephew, Ryan Hawley, arrived at the trailer house to babysit the couple's two children so that way they can go out for the evening. Um, because Reed had driven to the Jeep to work, 
The Vargas is left in their other vehicle, an Oldsmobile. At the trial, the state theorized that sometime in the evening between 1900 hours and 2200 hours, Stephen Vargas attacked and seriously wounded his wife outside her new apartment and left her for dead. Afterwards, he returned to the trailer house alone, leaving at about 2200 hours. He told Holly that his wife had gone to make some minor repairs at her apartment and Holly left shortly after. Both sides do agree that at about 2230 hours, Stephen Vargas telephoned Mel Melinda McLean asking if Rebecca Vargas was with her. On learning that she was not there, Stephen asked McLean to check on her at the apartment, explaining that he was unable to do himself, do so himself, because Reed had taken the Jeep to work and his wife had taken the Oldsmobile to the apartment. McLean agreed to go to the apartment. Excuse the loud engine noises. I don't have a studio here. At 2300 hours, Melinda McLean and her husband arrived at the Vargas' trailer house. Reed had just returned with the Jeep as well. The McLeans told Stephen that they had driven by the apartment and had seen the Oldsmobile parked out front. After talking for about 45 minutes, the McLeans prepared to leave, telling Stephen that they would drive by Ben Loman Lanes to see if Rebecca had gone there, and if they had not seen her car there, they would drive again, again drive by the apartment, excuse me. Not finding the Oldsmobile at the bowling alley, Melinda and David McLean returned to the apartment. They parked behind the Oldsmobile, which was still there, and knocked on the apartment door. When nobody answered, Melinda McLean began to walk around the building. Before be getting all the way around the building, however, she heard moaning. She brought her husband to the northeast corner of the porch to listen. In addition to the moaning, they heard a low, calm, indiscernible, masculine voice. Melinda McLean also thought that she heard someone crouched over the bushes. However, her husband behind her husband believed she was simply imagining things. Based on what they heard, the McLeans concluded Rebecca was having sexual relations with someone. Now it was about uh, 0 0.30 hours or half past midnight. The McLeans left, went to a nearby convenience store, and called Stephen. This is before cell phones uh, and before everybody had one connected to them. <laughs> they called Stephen telling him that his wife was at the apartment and it sounded like she was having sex, sex with somebody. Stephen had told them, quote, let her have her fun, unquote, and to go home. Instead of going home, the McLeans returned to the apartment for the third time that night. This time they heard nothing. They went to Ben Norman Lames, then returned once more to the apartment. 
It was now about 100 hours. As the McLean's approached the apartment, they discovered the Vargas's Jeep parked next to the Oldsmobile. They drove to an adjacent street and waited. Shortly afterwards, as shortly afterward, Stephen walked out from the east side of the apartment building, wearing his robe and shaking his head. As he approached the jeep, he ducked down and appeared to wipe something off of himself. The McLeans drove away without confronting him, but he saw the couple stop near at a nearby intersection. Stephen pulled over in the jeep and the McLeans got out of the car to speak with him. He stated that he did not want his wife to think that he was spying on her and asked him not to, quote, tell anybody that I was there, unquote. As they parted, he reiterated, tell nobody I was here and whatever you, what, whatever happens, tell don't tell anybody I was here, unquote. The McLeans again returned to the apartment for the fifth time that night, but heard nothing and went home. At, at about 0600 that morning, Stephen called the McLeans again and asked him to again to check on his wife. Melinda McLean told him to call the police and ask them to go to the apartment. He did so but the police refused to send anyone over because Stephen said he had no reason to believe Melinda, uh, Rebecca was in any danger, danger. He again called the McLeans and they went to the apartment. Melinda McLean knocked on the door and after getting no response, entered the apartment. She did not find Rebecca inside. She then began searching outside the building. As she came around the east side of the building, she found Rebecca's body lying on the ground. Rebecca was lying on her on her back. Her sweatshirt and bra had been both pulled up to her chin, exposing her, exposing her chest and abdomen. The temperature, temperature that morning was about 20 degrees. Her face, hair, and clothes were covered with frozen blood. There was a pool of blood by her head and a larger pool by at her feet. Nearby was a battery-operated lantern, a set of keys, and a cigarette lighter. The lantern was covered in her blood and a clump of her hair. Later investigation revealed that Stephen owned a similar lantern, however, it could not be found at his trailer house after the homicide. Stephen fing Stephen's fingerprints were identified on the lantern's battery. Rebecca died from repeated blows to the top of her head, which extensively fractured her skull and resulted in swelling of the brain and the loss of blood, as well as hypothermia. Some of the blows were inflicted while she was either standing or sitting upright. These injuries were located toward the back of the back half of the top of the skull, and the weapon that inflicted these injuries was not found. The more serious injuries, however, were located toward the front of the skull and were inflicted while she was lying on the ground 
or pressed against a stationary object such as a wall. Dr. Maureen Frick, a forensic pathologist and the state's expert witness, had testified that these injuries could have come from the lantern found at the scene. Dr. Frick could not determine the injuries whether the injuries were all inflicted in one attack or two separate attacks as the state contended at trial. She had conclu concluded that Rebecca, Rebecca likely survived for several hours after the initial attack and was lying on her stomach for some time. She was discovered lying on her back, however, and the pool of blood at her feet was several feet away from her injuries at the time that she was discovered. Thus, someone had moved her body after the initial attack, but before Melinda McLean discovered it. Again, at the trial, the state contended that this occurred when Vargas returned to the scene of the crime at about 0100 hours. Additionally, Dr. Frick found that some of the injuries to Rebecca, Rebecca's face occurred after her death. Shortly after the discovery of the body, the McLeans went to the Ogden police station at, at about 0830 hours the same morning. Stephen also went to the police station explaining that he was there to pay traffic ticket fee and fees for expired license tags for the McLeans. Upon the Stephen's arrival, Officer Scott McGregor told him that he needed to talk to him. Vargas agreed to answer questions but was not informed of his wife's death. For six hours, the police intermi intermittently but extensively questioned him about the whereabouts of the about his whereabouts the previous night and his relationship with Rebecca. He never asked about his wife or why he was being questioned, although he was read his wife, his rights and how to contact Rebecca's family. Stephen confirmed that he had driven by the apartment the previous night, but asserted that he had remained in his car and not stopped. Later, however, he stated he did get out of his car and went around to the east side of the building. A subsequent search of the trailer house and jeep revealed that the clothes Stephen wore to the apartment that night had been cleaned. Additionally, in the jeep, the police noted that the driver's side floor was, quote, unusually free of leaves and cleaner than the rest of the jeep's floor areas, including the floor mats. Nevertheless, the police found leaf fragments under the driver's side floor mat. On the other fragments, they found blood that matched Rebecca's DNA. Stephen was later arrested and held in the county jail. While there, two inmates alleged that he confessed to the killing. Don Bays was in jail on a charge of attempted murder. Following a conversation with Stephen, Bays for his asked his probation officer to talk to prosecutors about a plea bargain in exchange for information. The state agreed and Bayes gave a statement that Stephen had told him, quote, 
I knew Becky was going to leave. She was seeing someone else. It drove me crazy. And that is why I killed the, fu the fucking bitch. I beat the fucking out of the bitch. The, unmade, the other inmate, Jeff Combe, was a previous acquaintance of Stevens and was on jail on forgery charges. According to Combe, Stephen confessed the killing to him was to, quote, get it off his chest, unquote. Allegedly, Combe, he, t he allegedly told Combe that, quote, I won't put up with her leaving me for a cop. For a cop. I war I warned her if you ever leave me again, I will kill you. Unquote. A jury convicted Stephen of murder and gets life in prison without the possibility of parole, and he appeals. The appeal, of course, fails. Stephen did come up for parole. On, March, uh, on May 3rd of 2016, but from what I could find in the archives, it looks like the, the board did deny his parole. The next parole hearing is set for May of 2026. What comes next is information that I found on the parole hearing. These, uh, these are just small snippets That I did find it's not the whole parole hearing. If um, because uh, I couldn't find anything on the whole parole hearing, just snippets and articles. Uh, I don't want to read you whole articles on parole hearings. On the on the parole hearing, excuse me. So Stephen did finally come out and confess to the parole board. Of the homicide of his wife, stating, quote, I grabbed the hammer and hit her in the head with it and took her life right there. Unquote. Here's several more of the things that I've managed to find that Stephen has said in the hearing. Quote, I was pissed and jealous and embarrassed and mad. Everything went hay haywire in my head. Quote. He continues saying, Quote, I thought I struck her a couple of times, but the autopsy said I hit her eight times. She couldn't defend herself. I was a lot bigger and stronger. Unquote. And then uh, he also says in the parole hearing, quote, I didn't want the responsibility of what I had done. I was a coward and didn't want to tell my daughters that I had killed their mother to tell her family. I gave a lot of false hope to both sides. I don't think anybody wanted it to be me. I didn't have the guts, so I just shut up." Unquote. Of course he has to say something uh, to make it sound like at least he's uh, sorry. He goes on to say, quote, I'm sorry for the pain that I caused. If I'm released, I won't move back to Ogden. 
I've trained as a machinist in prison and would live and work in Salt Lake City, unquote. He, goes also, he also goes on to say, quote, I miss Rebecca every day and I miss my daughters, unquote. He also says, quote, I already knew they were gone forever before this hearing. I can't ever make up for it and I know that, unquote. Uh, he also says, uh, quote, after a few years in prison, I've started to accept the entirety of what I've done, unquote. And another, quote, I'm not this, that person that I was at the moment in time anymore. I will carry the honors of what I did forever, unquote. Then he goes on to say, quote, it sucks being a coward. It hurts really bad, unquote. Mm. Also at the hearing, they did have the family testify as well as to whether or not he should be paroled. Madeline Dulbon, excuse me if I slaughtered your last name. That's Stephen's daughter, now 28. She had delivered some very harsh remarks at the hearing, telling Stephen that she was once a, quote, naive girl who defended you, but this girl is now a woman who was once scarred, by, scarred for life by your selfish decision to keep my mother to yourself, unquote. Madeline had said that her faith has given her strength over the years to forgive Stevens. Stephen. She also said, quote, but I love my mom more than I will ever love you. She deserves justice and mostly she deserves peace. Unquote. She urged the board to keep Stephen, now 60, imprisoned for life. Quote, I know the prison is over overcrowded. You've been on your best behavior and you're getting older. She, unquote. She had told Stephen, quote, but you do not deserve to breathe the air that our mom could have. You don't deserve to walk amongst us. You chose our future long ago, but it is our time to fight for the to fight for our freedom from you. Unquote. Madeline also read a statement from her younger sister Stevie Weaver, who wrote, quote, When I was seven, he told me if I looked like my mother, he would kill me too. The thoughts of him scares me to this day. Unquote. Wow, this guy's a real POS.
this is just another sad case of domestic violence on, at the home. It, I can say, yeah, they caught the right person. The right person's in jail. I hope in 2026, when he does come up for probation again, they keep him locked up where he belongs. Gentlemen, never hit a lady. No matter how upset you get. Ladies, never hit a guy either. Yes, it does go both ways. You rarely hear of men being physically abused in, do in domestic violence. I never reported mine. I never saw the point in it. It was just some bruises, but it would heal. Luckily, it never got any worse than that. And we woke up not too long after that. But I promised myself that I would report any girl that I should ever be with after that, if it ever came to that. That's what I promised myself. After a lot of introspection. After that ex and I had broken up. Personally, I'd like to know why Rebecca actually went back to Stephen for the second time when she had actually gotten away from him safely the first. I couldn't find out why when I looked back on the case. Um, that's more than just manipulation going on there. As usual, the media always has more information about the killer than the victim. In fact, this case actually kind of got buried by the wayside. There wasn't too much in the media either. Most of this information I got was from court records. If you are in, a, in an abusive relationship and need help, know that you're not alone. There are places you can go and escape to. There are shelters in every city. To locate one or talk to someone, I have links on the links and resources page on the podcast website. With that said, this brings this episode to a close. Thank you for listening and subscribing to my podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe and tell a friend. And please rate and review this podcast if you like it. We're on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any comments or suggestions for cases, please feel free to email info at darkersidepodcast.com. I'm on Twitter, Twitter as darkersidepodcast.com. And I'm on my official home on the internet uh, on zafula.com. Look for the official uh, 
podcast page there as well. Mahalo and see you next time on The Darker Side.